0: This is KX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer.
1: I'm Charles Feldman. Donald Trump returns to New York to face criminal charges. Welcome to the Twilight Zone.
0: California's extraordinary snowpack. Also, the City of Light says adieu to electronic scooters.
1: But we start with Trump. Rick Wilson, a veteran Republican political consultant, founder of the Lincoln Project. Rick, thanks for being with us.
2: Glad to be with you.
1: It is a bit like an episode of The Twilight Zone, except it's real. Uh, but it is unusual. It is unprecedented. And it is so Uh, Have you ever seen anything like this?
2: No, none, none of us ever have, except in 2016, where I feel like we're in some, in some kind of a time loop right now, where all of a sudden every TV channel is covering Donald Trump 24-7, live shots of the cars rolling out of Mario Lago. To the airport, you know, uh, the everyone's talking about him. He, in some ways, I think he's probably happier today than he's been in a long time. He's the center of attention once again. Uh, no matter how consequential these charges are, and, and and you know, the guy has the luck of the devil. Um, he's got what he wants most of all, and that's everyone focused on him again.
0: What do you make of uh, uh, Trump and his supporters saying that uh, it is it is so wrong to uh, to charge? A presidential candidate that is an outrage up with which they will not put—that is something that never should ever happen in the United States. How do you square that with? Uh, I seem to recall some kind of chant during the 2016 campaign. I think it was what, it was something well, yeah, like "lock her I, up." If, if memory serves, I
2: recall, I recall the same. This the same one where no charges had been filed against uh, against Senator Clinton. No, no, no criminal proceedings were underway, and yet they were um they they roared with pleasure every time he said he would put her in jail and you know this idea that the republican party as it was that believed in the rule of law still exists is is is, is a joke at this point it's risible um there's nothing um uh, you know in this in this case that's outrageous or extreme the law if it does not apply to every american uh equally including former presidents who are engaged in criming um then it then it means nothing so they're they're outraged. They're angry. They're probably going to do stupid things. Um, but that's sort of par for the course at this point in American history. And their outrage and their anger doesn't take away the fact that 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 a, a grand jury um, has found that there's probable cause to issue an indictment against him. That, and that tomorrow he's going to face a judge who's not going to put up with the shenanigans and the, and the games. is um, going to tell him what the rules are, because now he is an indicted. He's an indicted person. He has to face justice. They don't like it on the on the Trump side of the equation, um, but they're they're very cavalier about um, ab- about the law applying to everyone. But it applies to him as well. And 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 while that doesn't hurt him politically, uh, it hurts their feelings intellectually because they they find it such an outrage. How dare anyone? Um, how dare anyone call Trump to account for things he's actually done and largely admitted to doing?
1: Well, let, let Rick, let, let me ask you a, a, a personal question. You still consider yourself a Republican, right?
2: I, I'm a conservative. I'm not a Republican any longer. I'm an independent. I don't have a party right now. I mean, I really don't have a political home right now.
1: Because and, it, and is that because as, of, is that because of Trump?
2: Absolutely. Okay. And it's because of Trump and and the way he transformed what was a party that believed in the Constitution individual responsibility the rule of law and imperfectly mind you the rule right. of law um and all the things that conservatives once believed have now been thrown out the window it is it has now become this this uh, obsession and dedication to Donald Trump no one else believes anything in the party there's no ideology there's no philosophy there's no policy it's all like trump and power are the two things they believe so in.
1: so then who rick are all of these americans and they are americans who sure. consider themselves still republicans you don't consider yourself one anymore but they do who are I've been reading some of the the comments they've been making over the weekend in support of Donald Trump and one can argue that well it's a minority of the country but it's a pretty large minority not oh, to no, mention no listen
2: yeah. it's it's So how do you
1: explain probably. Yeah but that's my question to you Rick is is having you having once been until pretty recently, right. a Republican, mm-hmm. card carrying Republican. Yep. How do you explain your your former cohorts?
2: Listen, I I have I have written two books about this subject. And in everything Trump Touches dies, I describe the journey that a lot of people of principle in the conservative movement were forced to take. You could do one of two things. You could compromise and hope the compromises would stop after the first couple or you could stand. It is much easier in life to compromise. A few of us decided to stand. Um, There are many, many people in the country who are what I call cultural and behavioral Republicans because that's how they've grown up. They're not people who get up every day and think, how does this fit in with this larger philosophical construct of conservatism? I get that. Um, But everything they claimed to believe as Republicans um, has been thrown out the window. And so their culture protects Trump from losing those people. They've been convinced by a very large and sophisticated media apparatus that the choice is an existential decision between Trump and communism, or or some other thing from the catalog of imaginary demons. Um, and, And they believe that because it's reinforced every single day by a gigantic media and social media construct from Fox on down telling them be afraid unless you stick with him the world will burn your children will be killed it's they make it a very existential choice and you know if you watch the coverage of the news they consume whether it's newsmax or oan or fox or the billion facebook groups that drive a lot of the behavior politically of the prime demographics inside the republican party they're told every day be afraid they're told they're given this absolutely alternative version of america and so that's what keeps them. That's what keeps them stuck. Awesome
1: answer, but we got to leave it there, I'm afraid. Rick Wilson,
0: thank you so much. A, re, a veteran Republican political consultant and also founder of the Lincoln Project.
1: You know, he, inadvertently, I think he came up with a, a good title for another book: "Imaginary Demons." The imaginary demons. When we come back, why the Republican Party just cannot shake itself? Of yeah, you know who. You're listening. KNX in depth with Rob Barcher. I'm Charles Feldman. Still come, all of a sudden, California is talking about a lot of water. And many Republicans. They're not talking about water, they're talking about rallying around Donald Trump. Why can't the mainstream part of the GOP shake him? Tom Nichols is a uh, writer at The Atlantic, formerly served as a professor of international relations at the U.S. Naval War college. Tom, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So in our last segment, we were talking with someone uh, who was a card-carrying Republican, no longer considers, him, considers himself to be one. Um, and even he had a hard time, I think, explaining how his former uh, fellow Republicans are reacting to the way many of them are reacting to uh, Uh, what has befallen Donald Trump the past few days. Uh, He's raised, he says, uh, millions of dollars since his indictment. Uh, He's had uh, many top Republican leaders in Congress, uh, even people that he has opposed and who have opposed him, come out in support. Uh, He has people around the country, many, you know, certainly not all Americans, but many Americans who are praising him, who are saying that uh, his fight is their fight. What's going on?
3: I think the first thing you have to understand, and I was a former, I'm a former card carrying Republican as well. Um, I think the most important thing to understand is that elected Republicans are terrified of their own voters. They, this is, um, you know, it's a line I often steal from George Will, that this is the first time in history that a major American party fears and dislikes its own um, base voters. And so um, what's left of the mainstream party, and I don't really think there's very much of that left to talk about, but what's left of the non-Trump Republicans, um, people like Jeb Bush, that if they want to have any viability or voice in the current Republican Party, they have to make a big show of sucking up the Donald Trump. And and this is partly because of the primary system, they, they're doing things that um, a lot of these elected Republicans are doing things Um, Not because it would really help them win a general election, but because they have to survive the primary election um, in their various states and uh, districts. And those are controlled by the most extreme kind of, you know, wacky conspiracy theory pro-Trump voters. So, Tom, but I want
1: to ask you then because you raise an interesting uh, point. Are you suggesting and I don't know if you are, but maybe you are. That if we were to go back to the days when uh, presidential candidates were selected, you know, in in back rooms, smoke-filled rooms as opposed to primaries, that Donald Trump would have ceased to be a problem a long time ago?
3: Oh, man, bring back (laughs) – I worked in Democratic and Republican (laughs) politics going back – over 40 years, and I, I, you know, I worked in the Massachusetts State House, I worked in the U.S. Senate, bring back the smoke-filled rooms, Uh, you know, this is, um, and, and, but there's more to it than that. I mean, the smoke-filled rooms can only take you so far, and they're not the most democratic way to choose our elected leaders. The other problem is that we have sorted ourselves into districts, some of it is gerrymandering, some of it is voter suppression, but some of it is just where people choose to live. So that you know, you have hyper blue cities and hyper red, burbs and and rural areas, and so in order to survive long enough to get to a general election, um, you have to survive your 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 nutty primary. I mean, you know, look at the difference between Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, you know, Boebert had to go hard over in Colorado just to make sure that she could grab every single Republican. That was available to her, and she only won by 600 votes. Mm. Green could kind of, oh, I'll be a good guy. I'll work with Kevin McCarthy. I can do some of the things that will annoy my base um, because she's in a, you know, plus bazillion Republican district where she could lose half her support and still get elected. So part of the problem is that um, it's just the it's the primary structure, but it's also the fact that the that the Republican base has just kind of gone crazy that we have a. A base voter that's just kind of become extreme
0: isn't it also possible there's another factor here to, to and we have to get cynical it's not it's not just we got to keep the base happy because in today's Republican Party if you are seen as not loyal enough to Trump they can they still have the power to run you up but also part of it is for example with this uh, indictment issue uh, the indictment issue is is a money Bonanza as far as fundraising goes so you can fundraise off of opposing this indictment it's un-American And the charges are weak, even though nobody knows what the charges are yet. But you can fundraise off that. And part of that is the the political system that is enslaved to you've got to make boatloads of money or you're out.
3: I'm going to disagree with that somewhat, because when you say you can fundraise off this, no, Donald Trump can fundraise Mm -hmm. off of it. But Trumpism doesn't scale very well, as Ron DeSantis is now learning the very hardest way um as nikki haley and mike pence are are learning uh and in fact the the donor class of republicans the people who really you know fund a lot of um republican elections and and this is i think particularly true in the case of desantis um they're they're not on board with a lot of the stuff trump does and you saw that when desantis had to do that quick two-step of kind of trying to catch a little bit of um trump's halo on ukraine by by talking about you know Ukraine not being that important. And then a day later, realizing that he'd kind of run afoul of all the normal Republicans with checkbooks, that he had to kind of back off and say, no, no, I, you know, I, I misspoke. I, I didn't mean to go down that road. Um, the problem is that what works for Trump and, and super MAGA candidates in very red districts doesn't really work for anybody else. So I, I think there's some of, there's something to that. Um, but Trump is really the only person that really seems to be able to monetize all of this and, stuff.
0: And he apparently has it's so millions of dollars. Yeah. All right. Tom. Yeah, I
3: mean, it's it's very cultish. Thank you,
0: Tom. Uh, Tom Nichols, writer at The Atlantic.
1: When we come back, are there any guidelines, any for a presidential candidate running for the White House while facing criminal trials?
0: You're listening to KDX In-Depth with Charles Feldman. I'm Rob Archer.
1: And uh, a little bit later, when we continue In-Depth, Parisians give a croissant-covered finger to the (laughs) electronic scooter. (laughs) (laughs) Donald Trump is
0: facing one indictment, and there could be at least two more. And there is no rule book for a presidential candidate running while under indictment. Julian Zelizer is a political historian at uh, Princeton. Thanks so much for joining us today.
4: Thanks for having me. Nice to be with
0: you. You know, an interesting thought uh, struck not just me, but several other people at about the same time, it seems like. And I'm sure somebody else had it before we did, that uh, if uh, Donald Trump is convicted and becomes a felon on any of these indictments coming up, he can still run for president, as I understand the law. But in some states, convicted felons can't even vote. What do you make of that as far as uh, presidential history is concerned?
4: It's true. Uh, And there's nothing in the Constitution stipulating that he wouldn't be able to run. It's very vague. It just lays out the basic criteria. And I think most legal scholars admit uh, even if he can't vote, he will still be able to run for president. And uh, there have been other candidates who've been uh, indicted, imprisoned, uh, and, and at the state and national level, they still run.
1: All right. Now, let's take this to the nth degree, because Mr. Trump is is nothing but an expert at stalling, uh, has been doing it successfully for decades. It is conceivable that this trial and if he's indicted in Georgia or indicted on uh, federal charges in the future, that none of the trials might be ready to go uh, before uh, Election Day. Suppose, you know, he goes to trial, he gets convicted and then he also gets elected president. Then what?
4: Well, uh, then we're in new territory. Obviously, there have been a few moments when there have been questions about uh, presidents in office and what you can or can't do legally. This came up with Nixon, Richard Nixon, uh, when there was uh, a lot of demand for a criminal trial uh, and there were legal experts, including the special counsel, who agreed that a sitting president could be brought uh, under criminal charges although that would be disputed. So we don't really know how it would play out. It would end up as a big legal battle. Um, But again, there's nothing formally prohibiting uh, criminal proceedings from taking place against the sitting president. And many in DOJ have agreed it can happen.
0: So if he's convicted and then becomes president uh, and he's a convicted felon as president, Congress uh, would still have the legal right and the opportunity to, for an impeachment based on that alone, would they not?
4: That's exactly right. And, and so where there's legal gray, uh, there's not political ambiguity. Uh, the House would have the full authority, as they did twice during his first term, to move forward with an impeachment. The Senate would have the ability, if they wanted, uh, to remove the president should those articles of impeachment uh, pass. Uh, Obviously, we're a long way away from any of these scenarios, um, but you can also speculate how even under those conditions, even under something that becomes that extreme of a situation, as we saw twice, including after an insurrection, Um, very likely he would be protected by his party at that point. But again, that's many steps away, so it's hard to totally predict how it would play out.
1: So you're a political historian. Uh, You know better than than most of us, I dare say, uh, the bizarre turns that American politics has taken through the couple of centuries. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the most bizarre and 0 being nothing at all, where would you put this?
4: This is very bizarre. And <laughs> I would say 10. I'll give it a 10. You'll give it a I mean, 10. We're in bizarre <laughs> world. It's not simply the indictment. It's this indictment coming with multiple investigations on different issues taking place. And in the aftermath of something that was really unique, a president leading an effort to overturn the election he lost. So you put all those together And that's why I think this indictment beyond just the indictment is so spectacularly odd, disconcerting, troubling, whatever word you want to use. Uh, And we really haven't had a situation like this in the past.
0: All right. Julian Zelizer, political historian at Princeton, thanks so much for being on In Depth today.
1: Have you ever used an electronic scooter?
0: I have not because I have uh, the balance of a melted ice cube. (laughs) I can't balance on one of those.
1: You know, we're going to talk about water, too, later. So, yes, so, so that, I worked it all kind of, in. That kind of that was very good. That kind of got it in. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, as you heard, the record-breaking amounts in our snowpack. Yeah, uh, official measurement of the Central Sierra snowpack found that it's sitting at 237 percent of seasonal average. The question is, can we make it last? Caitlin Peterson is associate director of the Public Policy Institute of California's Water Policy Center. Caitlin, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So right now, it seems like we are awash with water, uh, or at least will be. But you and I know the history of this state is such that what we have one day, we seem to not have the next day. So will we have this the next day?
5: Yeah, it's a really good question, and it is certainly exciting to see those numbers rolling in on the snowpack. It's not something we've seen in a while, and we're probably not going to see it again for some time. Uh, But as you said so appropriately, in California, we know that the next drought is right around the corner. Um, And an important bit of perspective, we've been here before uh, and relatively recently as well. In 2019, we also had an excellent wet year our reservoirs were looking good. We were full of optimism. And then we blinked for a second and 2020 through 2022 were three of the driest years in the state's recorded history. So, so how we do know we that, that things can go from one way to another very quickly here.
0: Right. So how do we bank this water? And and can right, we bank it long term?
5: Yeah, that's the million dollar question right now for sure. Um it's well the short answer is it's very difficult. We've basically stored all that we can above ground right now. Most of our reservoirs are full. Um, some are, are actually spilling over the top right now. Um, and and that doesn't leave us a lot of room to sock anything away for future dry years, especially considering that a lot of these reservoirs are multipurpose, right? So we can't just keep them full to the brim like they are now we have to allow some space for this massive snowpack that we have it's going to start melting. That's going to continue to fill up those reservoirs. Part of their job is for flood protection, right? So we have to allow space for them to do that.
1: What about um, what about things like, like capturing rainwater within the confines of the city? I mean, have we really made mm-hmm. any progress in doing that? Are we doing that?
5: Yeah, I think that's a really important con- uh, conversation and there's some area for further development there. Um, as, as you know, Measure W was passed a couple of years ago, um, which basically uh, puts a tax on every every square inch of impermeable surface in the city. Um, and that's, that's going to be really important for enabling the city to capture more stormwater runoff into the future. Uh, however, we haven't really had a chance to test Measure W yet until this year. So this year, the rubber is really going to hit the road. Uh, and we're going to be able to see if we're going to make some progress on capturing stormwater. But those kind of projects uh, are great because they're multi-benefit, right? They're very helpful in terms of mitigating flood impacts in the confines of the city. They're also uh, a, a good way to improve our drought resilience by enabling us to diversify our supply sources. Um, so these are these are something good to keep an eye on going forward.
0: So uh, you still have some experts, even with all this uh, snowpack, and we had uh, a wet winter uh, still saying that we should do our part to conserve as much as we can. But uh, isn't it hard to conserve water when you're telling us that, you know, the reservoirs are full and we're going to have to figure out ways to make space for more water? So uh, why conserve? And then that leads to the other problem of our short attention span. I get Mm -hmm. used to not conserving and then we have another few years of drought.
5: Right, right. It's, it's sort of like a muscle, right? And as soon as you stop using it, uh, you sort of lose it. So I think um, officials are being very cautious um, and avoiding saying, hey, drought's over, we can celebrate. Because as we were just saying, in California, it's, it's never really over. And as soon as next year, we could see another extremely dry year where conservation is going to be important again. And I think another looming challenge, especially for Southern Cal- uh, California, is the status of the Colorado River Basin, which is still in very dire straits. It's been in a severe drought for over 20 years. And we can expect to see some significant cuts in our supplies from the Colorado River uh, in the near future. So that's another strong motivation to just maintain that vigilance and have conservation as just part of our mindset Mm -hmm. in our everyday life going forward.
0: All right, thank you. Caitlin Peterson, Associate Director of the Public Policy Institute of California's Water Policy Center.
1: Uh, the French. Some say you can't live with them. You can't live without them. But Parisians, they're going to have to live without e-scooters when we come back.
0: You're listening to Next In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer, along with Charles Felvin.
1: Well, e-scooters, yeah, we all know what they are. They seem to be uh, or will soon evaporate into the void in Paris, at least the ones you can publicly get. Uh, Voters there voting overwhelmingly to ban them by September. Helene Chautier is director of urban planning and design at C40. That's a consortium of about 100 mayors of the world's biggest cities. Uh, That includes, of course, uh, here, Los Angeles. She, however, is in Paris. Thanks for being with us. My French is terrible. I hope I I apologize if I got your last name wrong.
6: Hello. Thank you for inviting me. And you say it very well. Don't worry.
1: Okay. thank you.
6: Uh, So I suspect and correct
1: me if I'm wrong, that there's a generational issue here, or at least in Paris. Uh, I'm guessing that uh, older folks are more against these uh, E-scooters than younger people, or is that wrong?
6: Yes, probably, yes. Uh, I think uh, older people are not using e-scooters in most of the case, so they are less keen to, to be interested by e-scooter. That being said, I don't think that's the main problem. I think the main problem is that I think Paris has decided to try e-scooters. They have decided to push all the type of uh, active mobility, walking, cycling, which have led to a lot of great results. But E-Scooter has not proved to be so efficient, neither in terms of new mobility uh, uh, um, new mobility uh, solution. For example, they replaced uh, mainly public transport and walking, not cars, actually. Uh, and they, they have created a lot of trouble in the city. So at the end, the Myers and the, the politicians decide that it was maybe not the best uh, solution to invest in.
0: Now, we understand that the vote was overwhelming to ban them, but I also hear that there was a very, very low turnout. So was it a matter of most people not caring one way or the other, and the ones who did care were just definitely against them?
6: I think the first thing is that it was the first time they organized a votation like that. It's the first time they asked the citizen in Paris on one specific topic. So it's very a new way of... uh, Organizing the democracy in the city, and I think that's probably the most, uh, the biggest re- reason why the people did not uh, show up because they were not used to, to 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 do so. Also, it's maybe not the most important topic for most of the Parisians. So, for example, now there is discussion about you know instead of making the Parisian go to vote for one specific topic, maybe they can you know bring together several topics. Uh, so that might m- 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 make more people, and then of course that the people who are uh, who are interested on the topic that, that that decided to go to vote. So either because they, they think it's interesting, they use e-scooter, or either because they are less keen. But people who doesn't care most of the time. They are not going to 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 to, to vote.
1: Helene, let me ask you because uh, when Paris approved having these e-scooters. A lot of other major cities used uh, Paris as an example. And they said, well, if Paris is going to have e-scooters available to uh, rent, then we should, too. And we mentioned at the beginning that uh, your organization is a consortium of about 100 mayors, including uh, the mayor of the city of Los Angeles, where we are now. Uh, Since this vote—now, I know it's kind of early on, but— are you getting any sense perhaps from your fellow mayors in, in or other mayors, I should say, in, in other parts of the world that they're going to follow the example of Paris when it comes to e-scooters?
6: I think what you're right in a way, I think what is very interesting is that mayors are looking what other mayors are doing. So, we definitely see uh, a big interest from Myers all across the world to try to develop active mobility, so walking, uh, shared bike, all of these things. But they also learn from what didn't work in other cities. And the fact that Paris and the Mayor of Paris at the beginning was in favor, saying, you know, as part of the mobility package we want to propose to the Parisian rather than cars, this could be a solution. But then they face so many problems uh, in you know accidents, uh, public space, uh, problem on the public space and everything that at the end, and the bad result as well from a sustainability point of view, they decide that it's not a good solution, which so I think the approach is interesting. They experiments, they try, it doesn't work, they adjust. And I think what what the Parisian case have proved is that it was maybe not the most interesting solution for Paris. If it's not the case for Paris, it might be also not the best solution for the other uh, cities. That being said, you know, the situation between Paris and Los Angeles uh, is a little bit different. Also, I want to say it's not all the e-scooter has been uh, banned. It's only the rental shared scooter. Which is a difference for two reasons. First, one of the reasons that the mayor was uh, was uh, criticizing is the fact that it's very expensive. Uh, for ten minutes, is, it's approximately five to six euro, which much more expensive than uh, other like a shared bike or public transport. So that's one of the reasons. The second reason is that the studies have shown that uh, someone who owns an nice e-scooter, most of the time, they respect. Uh, right. They respect the way, while the shared scooter is like young, sometimes there are two on the scooter and they just, you know. Let me me ask you a
1: a quick question and then we have to go. Have you ever used an e-scooter?
6: Yes. Yes, I have done it. And that's right. That it's a little bit. uh, It's yeah, it's uh, it's not easy to use. Right. But but are you going to miss them
1: or, or are you kind of glad they're going to be gone?
6: Personally, I'm, I haven't used it because I found it very quickly that it was dangerous. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I did not use it, and and actually the the city has tried to limit the speed quite a lot. So at the end, it was less dangerous, but still the number of accidents was. So I yeah I I'm not going to meet them for sure.
0: All right, thanks so much. Uh... <laughs> Uh, Helene Chartier, Director of Urban Planning and Design at uh, C40. So uh, no more e-scooters in Paris. Uh, uh, Charles, are you going to cancel your trip to Paris if you can't ride a scooter?
1: No, so long as they still have macaroons,
0: I'm okay. There you go. All right, that's it for today's In-Depth. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.